This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. Natural Products Canada, the driving force behind Canada's natural product innovation cluster through support, guidance, introductions, programs, and investment. Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And cased meats. Love me a good cased meat. So a cased meat is something that is enclosed? A salami or a sausage or anything that is cased in usually its own sort of organ tissue, which is what most salamis that you eat have around it. And they're delicious. Organ tissue. Welcome to the show, everyone. Brett and Steph, besides talking about cased meats, we have a fun episode today and one that's a bit of a change of pace for us. We are talking about cannabis. Now, Brett, I know you wanted to devote a show to this topic. What intrigues you most about this space? I mean, it's just such an interesting opportunity space right now. And the reason I thought we should talk about it is because it is a super common trend in agriculture, right? With the legalization of it becoming more and more prevalent across the United States. It's already legal in Canada. There's more and more growers. It's just a huge opportunity, which means a lot of entrepreneurs are flooding the world, the cannabis world. So it's, it's a cool space to talk about. And Steph, I covered cannabis at CNBC and we went through the Canadian legalization and all of these big Canadian companies. We saw the trickle down effect in the U.S., more and more states coming online. And isn't it interesting how much more normalized it's become? And that's part of the story, right? And the brand building. Absolutely. It's kind of crazy. It's people going after a different market, a different audience for cannabis than they would have even, I think, five years ago, which is making it so much larger for everybody, just like like Brett is talking about. Well, we have a great company and founder to illustrate some of the opportunities and challenges for entrepreneurs in cannabis. We're talking to Kyla Cerny of Dispense, which is a software company that helps cannabis retailers engage with customers via e-commerce, whether it's through order fulfillment or managing appointments or building customer relationships. She started off in hospitality tech before making the pivot. And that brings us to our question of the day, which is, will cannabis go big or go by? Guys, founders in cannabis have so many challenges beyond the usual things entrepreneurs have to think about because government regulations and rules can be really cumbersome. Not only can they be cumbersome, but they're all different in different areas, which I think is one of the major challenges is what's legal in California is not legal in Minnesota, is not legal in Illinois, is legal in Florida. There's just so many differences when you go state to state that it makes having a business unbelievably complex. But one of the cool things, like while there's all these challenges, there's so much money in it that there's a lot of opportunity. And it's not just like the grower or the seller of the cannabis where there's opportunities. They're early adopters of ag tech oftentimes because they any yield gains that they get from their crop is real money versus you know a more commoditized crop where yield gains are a little bit add a little bit less to the bottom line. Not to mention for distribution, there's so much to be done there because a lot of people who don't want to deal with all the regulations want to outsource that part and have someone else take care of it. So a lot to dig into today. But first, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. Greek yogurt manufacturer Chobani 
withdrawing its plans to go public, according to a regulatory filing. The company tells CNBC its focus remains on strong execution and profitable growth. Guys, it's been a tough year for IPOs with the headwinds in the market and with private funds drying up. What are the prospects for a company like Chobani, which was reportedly going to use some of the proceeds of the IPO to pay down debt? We've seen this decision being made at a lot of late stage startups recently. And the decision is ROI based. If we IPO now, this is what the ROI for our earliest investors and shareholders is going to be. And it's going to be a lower valuation than it would have been a year ago. Or is it better to wait two years when maybe the public markets are a little bit better and we can continue to grow? Hopefully we get a better multiple and what's the ROI? And so they're really in these boardrooms and in these decision-making rooms, they're doing math. They're saying ROI today versus ROI in the future. And they're not only talking about that, they're talking about what does it take for us to keep growing for two years? Do they need a cash infusion? Do they need to raise more money? Are they able to just continue going on based on what they've already raised to get to that point where they can IPO in 2024? And it feels like these are the moments where you see a lot of true innovation, right? With people having to flex and pivot and just be more nimble during these challenging times. Well, next, BioBetter, an Israeli cultivated meat company, just raised a Series A round of $10 million, according to Axios. What's interesting about this company is that it repurposes tobacco plants as bioreactors to help make protein. The company says using tobacco plants, which are natural, self-sustaining, and animal-free, drives down much of the production costs of cultivating meat. Guys, is this an idea that could have traction in the U.S.? It's a pretty common theme of finding ag input that is relatively inexpensive to create a key input into plant-based proteins or plant-based alternative meats. And so you've seen it with tobacco, you've seen it with corn husks or banana husks, you see it with a variety of different plant species out there right now. And so it seems real. Like, you know, I don't know, I'm not a biologist, I don't know which is the actual best one, but there's a lot of companies out there pitching. We have the most effective, efficient plant-based input to help create. So there's a lot of it out there right now. You already see it in the U.S. in some cases as well. Well, finally, an executive at ADM recently gave BeverageDaily.com a look at some of the latest drinks in beverage flavors. And it looks like customers are looking for fresher and healthier choices in flavors. For instance, florals and herbs like mint, juniper, elderflower, and rose are getting more popular. They're seeing an infusion of vegetables in drinks as well, like green pepper notes in margaritas. There's also some quirky trends like Coca-Cola coming out with its zero sugar bite sparkling beverage, which, quote, brings out the flavor of pixels and is inspired by gaming. And Coca-Cola Starlight is described as an intergalactic flavor. Finally, there are some combos like bubblegum infused with fruity notes emulating unicorns. Any of those sound appealing to you guys? How do we know what a unicorn even tastes like to start? I'm into the intergalactic flavor. What do unicorns even taste like? You've never eaten unicorn? No. Do you eat the horn or do you eat like not the horn? Like what part of the unicorn do you actually eat? And are there fruity notes? And evidently a unicorn tastes fruity. I want to try the intergalactic flavor. What do you think that'll taste like? This feels like Crystal Pepsi all over again. You guys remember Crystal Pepsi? It does feel like Crystal Pepsi. But was Crystal Pepsi a failure of flavor or a failure of marketing? I don't remember Crystal Pepsi, so it must be marketing a fail because I would have heard about it, I think. Or I just maybe I just was living in a hole. You're probably living in a hole if you didn't hear about Crystal Pepsi, Aditi. 
<laughs> well, coming up, we'll talk to Kyla Cerny about her journey from helping coordinate the Super Bowl ring ceremony to building an e-commerce platform for cannabis dispensaries. Cannabis has arrived and it's spreading fast, far and deep. Marijuana is legal for recreational use in nearly two dozen states. Gwyneth Paltrow, Jay-Z, Joe Montana and Martha Stewart are just some of the A-listers backing cannabis companies. And recently, President Biden announced a mass pardon for people convicted of federal marijuana possession, a major inflection point in federal cannabis policy. With all that, many entrepreneurs are diving into cannabis. One of them is Kyla Cerny. She started out in software and launched an enterprise platform managing reservations at nightclubs. That startup called Tableless thrived and even survived a major crisis when it got caught up in the Fire Festival debacle in 2017. Nearly three years later, the pandemic hit and business wiped out overnight. That's when Kyla pivoted to cannabis. She started Dispense, which helps cannabis companies run their e-commerce sites. Since it launched, Dispense has been growing, yep, you guessed it, like a weed. While Kyla's success isn't surprising, cannabis is pretty far flung from her roots growing up in a traditional family in upstate New York. I grew up in Rye, New York. It's a suburb of New York City, little small town on the water. I've got two older brothers and a little sister. So, you know, I'm number three in the order there. Big Italian Irish family, always hosting holidays and family and, and mealtime were just really sort of like important things in growing up. Yeah, it, it was a really like nice place to grow up. And I can see already the beginnings of food with the Italian-Irish family, how important food must have been growing up to you. Yeah. You know, it's funny is like, you know, my grandma was came over through Ellis Island when she was a little girl and all of the values that she brought over from Italy. And, and she lived with us growing up, too. So there was so much emphasis on food and like you know, I would have friends over and they wouldn't believe like how much food she would make just to make sure everybody like ate enough. You obviously had also like a hospitality gene there. And what about entrepreneurship? Was that something that was very foremost in your childhood as well? I didn't necessarily know that I was an entrepreneur. I didn't really know what that was, but I knew that I just like loved to work. You know, I liked school. I think I probably liked the social aspect of school more, but I really love just like learning and sort of working. And my, you know, my first full-time job, literally 40 hours a week, I was 12 years old. It was my summer going into seventh grade. And I begged my parents to get a job at this like travel agency. And they paid me like, it was like totally off the books, like $5 an hour. And I worked from nine to five, Monday through Friday. And I just loved it. So sort of thinking about entrepreneurship, you know, I had learned about the co-op program at Northeastern University, probably my sophomore, junior year in high school. And I immediately knew that Northeastern was the college I wanted to go to. I didn't want to look anywhere else. I didn't want to apply anywhere else. Only applying to one school? Like, aren't you worried you're not going to get in? Like, I applied to 18 because I just wanted one to take me. Like, give me as many chances as I can. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely taking a bet there, but I just, I don't know. I was just really stubborn. So you were at Northeastern. What did you study there? I was an English major and 
My first co-op was at a company called uh, Raffinelli Events, which was a very, very high-end event planning company that I was very lucky to get sort of my first internship there, my first co-op there. And I ended up actually staying with Raffinelli all through school, through every single co-op that I had, and really kind of working my way through the company. So you were also this hospitality company, and that ended up directly correlating with what you ended up doing right after college, right? Yeah. I worked at this company. It was really grueling. I think people think of event planning as being like very glamorous. You think of like Jennifer Lopez and the wedding planner, you know, and it's just not that at all. But I really stuck it out for, you know, four years at that company was really building my network. So, you know, some of the events I was planning were like Super Bowl ring ceremonies for Robert Kraft at his home in Chestnut Hill and, you know, just really exciting stuff. I was 21. It was like the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Did it feel surreal? Can you give us any juicy details? Yeah. So, you know, my first meeting, like to kick off sort of the event planning process was I went to Gillette Stadium. I was with, you know, the owner of the company at the time, my boss at the time. And the two of us went to go meet with Robert Kraft in his office. We sat down and he had a box of uh, six rings. And the six rings were like, he was deciding on like which design he should go with as like the ring for, you know, that year. I think it was, it was 2004. And he asked me, he's like, which one do you like? Wow, <laughs> I, was like wow. I was so nervous. So I got to like put them all on my finger and you know, I told him which one was my favorite. And he was like, that one's my favorite too. <laughs> so, you know, like moments like that where, you know, you think about like all the hard work that goes into the events, but you have a moment like that and you're like, this is just like really cool. You know, I met like Tom Brady and a couple of the the players and everyone was really nice. And it was really cool, really cool experiences. As cool as it was, though, eventually you left that company to start your own. How did that come about? You know, after working like 100 hours a week for four years, you decide like, all right, I need to like maybe have a, enjoy a little bit of my time here. So um, ended up working for another hospitality operator. Um, his name is Brian Lesser. He owned and operated a bunch of restaurants and nightclubs in the Boston area. So I ended up coming on board with his team. And from there, realized that there was just like very little technology in that space, specifically nightlife and events. There was really no tech at all that existed. And being in Boston, you have so many students that, you know, come to you and kind of pitch ideas. And I was managing there at the time. I was always taking meetings with students. You know, I would meet with kids from MIT and from Harvard Business School and hear their pitches about how they want to help the hospitality industry. And none of them were ever like quite right until the idea of Tablist came around. Tell us a little bit about Tablelist and how it worked and how it helped to solve that pain point. We started off as just a consumer app where consumers could download the app and book a ticket or a table at a venue, right? We raised a bunch of money. We started uh, hiring people in every city to launch. Realized very quickly that in order to scale, we really needed that back-end venue management piece. So we ended up acquiring another company called Night Pro that was, you know, again, just a venue management software that was built for some of the major nightclubs in Miami. Through this journey, it was it was kind of crazy, right? We had a team of 23 people. We had sort of this B2C business, and now we're integrating the B2B business, right? We had signed on a really big ticketing contract with the Fire Festival. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Fire Festival. 
But for Tableless, right, we were actually the white label ticketing solution that Fire Festival used to sell all their tickets. I'm excited to hear more about this. <laughs> you know, team of 23 people, kind of first time doing something this large. We sold all the tickets and we actually, everyone knows what happened with Fire Festival, right? And we actually ended up getting stuck with all the chargebacks for the festival. So we had a three and a half million dollar liability with our payments processor. For those of us listening who don't know what happened with Fire Festival, can you give us a quick lowdown of that? Sure. Yeah. So Fire Festival was sort of this dream festival that was supposed to be happening on like a, you know, Pablo Escobar's private island down in the Bahamas. It was uh, sort of put together by a guy named Billy McFarland, who's now in jail. Or actually, I think he was just released from jail. Essentially, you know, they sold these tickets. They had all these celebrities endorsing the fire Festival, making it seem like it was just the, you could not miss it, right? It was like the festival of the century. And how much were tickets selling for? They started around $800 up to like $75,000 for like a yacht. I was asked by NEP, the producers, to be interviewed. And we really wanted to separate ourselves. At that point, we just were trying to like salvage our business. And like we really didn't want people to know that it was us. Like we wanted to do right by all the customers, getting them all their money back. You know, in the back end, it's like this was our business. Like this was, you know, a horrible time for us as a company to try and figure out like how are we going to survive this? In hindsight, I can say this now, but in hindsight, it was probably the best thing that had happened to us. But at the time, it did not feel like that. I'm curious, like, why was it in hindsight the best thing that happened to you? And what's like one like really key learning that you took away that you could share with other founders from that process and that experience? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think the biggest takeaway is pretty much overnight, we had to go from a team of 23 people down to five people, right? And the way that we made that decision was, okay, anyone that's not directly contributing to sales, like anyone that's not directly contributing to the bottom line has to go. And so it was a really difficult decision. But what we realized with the five people that ended up staying, we realized, number one, that all those five people really wanted to be there, right? Like we all believe so much in what we were building and what we were doing that we wanted to like see it through. And then you also realize that with no resources, you have to just be smarter about how you build things. So you're forced to solve problems with building really good tech. And then I think the third thing is just every single dollar that you have coming in matters. Looking forward at dispense, that's, you know, those are sort of core values that we sort of maintain with the company. And how did you come out of that and then end up kind of pivoting also into cannabis? Yeah, so we uh, cut all of our expenses. We uh, raised a little bit of cash from like our sort of existing investors just to settle the liability with our payments processor, which took months. I think we negotiated for about four months. You know, we rebuilt our tech, rebuilt the platform, making it very automated, self-sign up, just making it really easy for venues to use it so that, they're, you know, we didn't have to have a huge team of like customer success or support. I think what ended up happening was was pretty amazing, right? Like 2019 was actually the best year we ever had at TableList. And we had launched sort of this brand new platform in early of January 2020. And then COVID hit and shut down the whole hospitality industry. <laughs> so it was kind of crazy, right? You, you kind of overcome this huge obstacle. And then another huge obstacle is kind of you're presented with. So you're hit by COVID, which your sales are pretty much zero, right? And then what happens? 
Yeah. So, you know, again, we're kind of faced with that same thing. It's like, how do you preserve burn? How do you cut costs? How do you just stay afloat? We had to furlough a couple of our, you know, team members who at that point are family, you know, you've been working together for so long. So very randomly, I got a phone call from Abner Curtin, who is the founder and CEO of Ascend Wellness, which is a, you know, a large uh, MSO in the cannabis space. And I knew nothing about cannabis. I had never really thought outside of hospitality before. But Abner was familiar with Tableless because he had used it to go out. He had a really busy dispensary in Illinois, and they were doing, you know, a, a thousand plus orders a day. They were deemed an essential business, and they needed to comply with social distancing. So he was wondering if Tableist could actually help them with some sort of ticketing or reservation software just to be able to manage the flow of people coming in and out of the dispensary. And so Tim, who's my co-founder and our CTO, and I, we kind of got together we launched this like really basic like landing page with time slots on it. So people would place an order on their website and then they would get redirected to our landing page and just pick a time slot. And that was powered by Tableist. As the retail team at this dispensary was using Tableist, they were like, wow, like your tech is really fast and it's really zippy and it's got all these cool features. Like, can you build more stuff for us? The technology that you were using clearly had a compelling use case in cannabis and your company doesn't touch the plant, meaning you could be insulated from a lot of the legal issues with cannabis companies that do touch the plant, like greenhouses. But still, cannabis is federally illegal. There's a lot of rules, regulations, bureaucracy in legal states. How did you think about all of those challenges at the time? So you know, I still consider myself new to the cannabis space, right? I have to lean so much on like our, you know, investors that have been doing this for a really long time or other, you know, leaders in the industry to kind of teach me and guide me through all of this. You know, now I know, right? <laughs> but at the time, even though we're not plant touching, we actually have a lot of the same restrictions. So, you know, we've been, Dispense has been in existence for a little over a year now, and I think we've had to change banks three times. We uh, had a hard time finding, you know, an insurance provider that would give like DNO insurance. And then even when you do find it, it's like four times as more expensive than other industries. Same thing with just really understanding all of sort of the the different, you know, compliance, regulatory issues, like all of those types of things, making sure we build that into the tech. It does definitely affect us, but, you know, we kind of lean on others that have been doing this for a while to, you know, give us good recommendations. How does dispense work? You mentioned that at the very beginning, it was just people signing up for those time slots, but obviously it's become a lot more than that now. Yeah, you know, we started off at the time slots. And then uh, the next sort of big ask for us was to build out e commerce, right? So to integrate with a point of sale and to help the retailers sell and take orders online. And so, really, when Dispense kind of came into this industry, you know, there was really no tech that was just building strictly to empower the retailer, right? So that's sort of what we wanted to do is we wanted to give retail the retailers full ownership of that experience on their own website, full ownership of their customer data, of their ordering data, you know, all of those things so that they can leverage that to build direct customer relationships and build their own brands. You started off with that one dispensary in Illinois. Tell us a little bit about how much you've grown since then. Yeah, so what's crazy is that one dispensary was 
as I had mentioned, a part of an MSO, a very fast-growing, expanding MSO. And this large MSO that was using us at one location decided they were going to roll us out at all of their locations pretty much overnight. We went from having one location to 18, and they were continuing to grow. And our product was still in its infancy stages. So at that point, we're like, okay, we need to raise some funding. You know, we raised a small seed round last year, a little over $2 million, spent the year, you know, hiring out, you know, some key team members, and really just focus on the product as we were learning and growing with this one large MSO across these different states. As you look at the next year to even few years, what are some of your goals for the company? And what are some of the assumptions that those goals rest on? Yeah. So I think, you know, in the short term, like there's just so much to be done, even just on the e-commerce side, right? Like you you compare sort of e-commerce and cannabis right now to other verticals, all the tools and features that we're used to seeing, it just doesn't exist in cannabis yet. You know, we definitely want to bring those features to the cannabis online ordering experience. And is table list still up and running? Whatever ended up happening with table lists now that we're getting to the other side of the pandemic? Yeah, great question. So Tableless is still up and running and Tableless is doing very well. So it's exciting. You've been like with Tableless, it's a 10-year journey, you know, since you started. How do you stay motivated? How do you like keep at it, especially through like ups and downs? The grind of entrepreneurship is something that gets to all of us and and is really, really hard. Brett, it's such a good question. And I think every founder going through a journey like this, it's like, I'm really stubborn. I just refuse to give up, right? (laughs) So that's like one thing. Like I'm just, even tableless and dispense, it's like, I just believe so much in like what we're doing. I think that's really what motivates me. So we have some very specific rules of lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of very difficult questions. We'll start easy for you. How many dispensaries about are there in the U.S.? Uh, I believe around 7,500. How long is it going to be before there's 25,000 dispensaries in the U.S.? My guess is uh, 2024. We'll take it. Northwestern or Northeastern? Which is better? Northeastern. Ah, Steph, in your face. <laughs> Steph is a Northwestern <laughs> grad. That was a trick question. You didn't know that. I did not um, know that. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of food is better, Irish or Italian? Italian, definitely. (laughs) That's the correct answer, but I wasn't sure if you'd go that way or not. Do you recommend that entrepreneurs study English? Mm, No. No, correct. Although the best hire I ever made for any of my startups was a French major. What year, if ever, does cannabis become legal at the federal level in the United States? Oh, 2025. 2025, you heard it here first. 2025, it's going to happen. What's your favorite music festival? Oh, gosh. I I have no idea. I haven't been to a music festival in a really long time. (laughs) Fire Fest would have been a great answer there. You had the right answer on the tip of your tongue and you didn't use it. No. Are you a compliance company or a tech company? We're a tech company. What's the worst job you've ever had? Receptionist. Okay. Which industry is harder to build in? The cannabis space? Or the hospitality space? Cannabis space. <laughs> Interesting. I would have guessed that she was going to say hospitality there. Hospitality is a tough place to build a company. It is. Is there a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow? Yes. Correct. She got that one right, Steph. I told you she would get it right. All right. And we're going to end on this one. What's your favorite nickname for cannabis? Weed. 
a lot of people have heard that before. I was hoping you might go for like, you know, something crazy, but we'll accept it. That's all I got. You survived. Wasn't that hard. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Manu, the CEO and co-founder of Carbon Bridge. Manu, what's the problem that you're solving at Carbon Bridge? So at a very high level, we're about climate change. But more specifically, what we're trying to do is intercept methane and carbon dioxide from being emitted from bio-waste sources, such as in farms. And that's really what we're trying to attack and intercept. How you solve it? What we do to solve that is that we take the biogas, which comes out of manure and all kinds of ag waste, which consists of carbon dioxide and methane, these two troublesome gases, and we convert those gases into hydrogen and carbon monoxide. Hydrogen can be used as a clean fuel right away. This, you know, it's perfectly clean and also avoids the use of any other fuel system. And the carbon monoxide goes into all kinds of things that we need in our daily life from paint to polymers that are used in the plastics manufacture. Yeah. And so for a dummy like me, basically you're taking the bad gases from manure on farms and turning them into usable, cleaner energy sources or inputs in, in other products at the end of the day. What's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? To really do this, to make an impact on the world, you've got to have about 200,000 machines running at capacity of the type that we're trying to design. And to do that, we'll have to go after every dairy operation in the world, every animal farming operation in the world, any leftover biomass digestion systems, and capture and convert all of those systems. Today, I'm here with the co-founders of Clockout, Juan and Tony. Juan and Tony, what's the problem that you guys are solving at Clockout? At Clockout, you know, people have been getting paid the same way for over 80 years on a biweekly basis. As prices continue to rise with inflation, biweekly payment cycles are becoming more and more of a burden for hourly workers. They're not reaching the end of the month with their actual earnings at the moment. Got it. How are you solving that problem? We're creating a platform where we're able to track the employee's data from both payroll and their variable hourly labor. And we're able through a Venmo-like interface, provide them their available balance where they can cash it out instantly into any bank of choice. How are you guys going to take over the world? What's the big vision here? The big vision here is to be a banking powered by your daily earnings. We want to commoditize daily payments for all workers here. And by having access to this, we'll provide a full banking experience with debit cards, savings accounts, retirement funds, and even future product additions coming up soon in Demo Day that will be announced. But overall, giving more daily utility to every dollar that employees earn. So going back to our original question, will cannabis go big or go bust? Your thoughts, guys. I think it's going to be huge. There's so many aspects to it that I think we're just at the beginning of it because we're seeing different use cases for it. There's a huge opportunity here. How big is the alcohol industry? As cannabis becomes more and more normalized, I don't see any reason why the entire industry can't be the same size as 
beer, wine, and spirits, in my opinion. I think that one of the cool things about that is like there's all this opportunities for like ancillary and support organizations. It's not just the grower or the product company. It's also the technology that helps them do it. It's the input providers. It's the ERP system. It's all the unsexy food tech stuff that I love that can explode around the cannabis industry that gets me excited. Hey, and when you have Snoop Dogg and Martha both coming together and supporting cannabis, you can't go wrong, right? Cannabis. Try it. Fun episode, guys. See you next week. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.